I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you this morning, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you, Trey? Good, sir. Thank you. This time, we are looking at the 35th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1962, and the Best Picture winner of that year, Lawrence of Arabia directed by David Lean. Lawrence of Arabia premiered on December 10th, 1962, and featured Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence, Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal, and Omar Sharif as Sheriff Ali ibn al-Karish. The film's screenplay was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, based on T.E. Lawrence's autobiography, The Seven Pillars Are of Wisdom. Our synopsis comes from the fine folks at... Wikipedia. The film opens in 1935 when T.E. Lawrence is killed in a motorcycle accident. At his memorial service at St. Paul's Cathedral, Porter tries, with little success, to gain insights into the remarkable enigmatic man from those who knew him. The story then moves back to the First World War. Lawrence is a misfit British Army lieutenant who is notable for his insolence and education. Over the objections of General Murray, Mr. Dryden of the Arab Bureau sends him to assess the prospects of Prince Faisal in his revolt against the Turks. On the journey, his Bedouin guide, Tafas, is killed by Sharif Ali for drinking from his well without permission. Lawrence later meets Colonel Brighton, who orders him to keep quiet, make his assessment, and leave. Lawrence ignores Brighton's orders when he meets Faisal, and his outspokenness piques the prince's interest. Brighton advises Faisal to retreat after a major defeat, but Lawrence proposes a daring surprise attack on Aqaba. Its capture would provide a port from which the British could offload much-needed supplies. The town strongly fortified against a naval assault, but only lightly defended on the landward side. He convinces Faisal to provide 50 men, led by a pessimistic Sharif Ali. The teenage orphans Dawd and Faraj attach themselves to Lawrence as his servants. They crossed the Nefid Desert, considered impassable even by the Bedouins, and traveled day and night on the last stage to reach water. One of Ali's men, Ghassim, succumbs to fatigue and falls off his camel unnoticed during the night. When Lawrence discovers him missing, he turns back and rescues Ghassim, and Sharif Ali is won over. He gives Arab robes to Lawrence to wear. Lawrence persuades Ada Abu Tayy, the leader of the powerful local Hawatat tribe to turn against the Turks. Lawrence's scheme is almost derailed when one of Ali's men kills one of Ada's because of a blood feud. Since retaliation by the Hawatat would shatter the fragile alliance, Lawrence declares that he will execute the murderer himself. Lawrence is then stunned to discover that the culprit is Ghassim, the man for whom he risked his own life to save in the desert. But Lawrence sticks to his word and executes Ghassim. The next morning, the Arabs overrun the Turkish garrison. Lawrence heads to Cairo to inform Dryden and the new commander, General Allenby, of his victory. While crossing the Sinai Desert, 
Dodd dies when he stumbles into quicksand. Lawrence is promoted to major and gives arms and money for and given arms and money for the Arabs. He's deeply disturbed and confesses that he enjoyed executing Gassim, but Allenby brushes aside his qualms. Lawrence asks Allenby whether there's any basis for the Arab suspicions that the British have designs on Arabia. When pressed, Allenby states that there is none. At this point in the film, there is an intermission. When the film resumes, Lawrence launches a guerrilla war by blowing up trains and harassing the Turks at every turn. An American war correspondent, Jackson Bentley, publicizes Lawrence's exploits and makes him famous. On one raid, Farage is badly injured. Unwilling to leave him to be tortured by the enemy, Lawrence shoots him dead before he flees. When Lawrence scouts the enemy-held city of Dura with Ali, he is taken prisoner, along with several Arab residents, and brought before the Turkish Bay. Lawrence is stripped, ogled, and prodded. Then, for striking out at the bay, he is severely flogged before he's thrown into the street. The experience leaves Lawrence shaken, and he returns to British headquarters in Cairo, but discovers that he no longer fits in. A short time later in Jerusalem, General Allenby urges him to support the big push on Damascus. Lawrence hesitates to return, but finally relents. He recruits an army that is motivated more by money than by the Arab cause. They cite a column of retreating Turkish soldiers who have just massacred the residents of Tafas. One of Lawrence's men is from Tafas and demands no prisoners. When Lawrence hesitates, the man charges the Turks alone and is killed. Lawrence takes up the dead man's battle cry, the, resulting in a slaughter in which Lawrence himself participates. He regrets his decisions thereafter. Lawrence's men take Damascus ahead of Allenby's forces. The Arabs set up a council to administer the city, but the British cut off access to the public utilities, leaving the desert tribesmen to debate how to maintain the occupation. Despite Lawrence's efforts, they bicker constantly and soon abandon most of the city to the British. Lawrence is promoted to colonel and immediately ordered back to Britain, his usefulness to both Faisal and the British at an end. As he leaves the city, his automobile is passed by a motorcyclist who leaves a trail of dust in its wake, mirroring his death several years later. And that is Lawrence of Arabia. Was this your first time watching it, Blaine? It was, yes. How about yourself? I watched it for the first time recently, probably within the past... I think I watched it in early 2020 for the first time as part of the viewing project. So technically this was my second, but it's my first time was within the past year. Okay, so still fairly recent. Yeah. Before this, my only familiarity was... The attack scene on the train. You know, I Lawrence of Arabia will probably get into this a little bit more later on, but I know I know that it's still held in high esteem by several film critics. And both Turner Classic movies used to have like a history of film reel, for lack of a better word, that had, you know, clips of films from the silent era to the modern era. And then there uh, was the great movie ride at Disney World that ended with a montage of great movie moments. And the attack scene on the train was in both film montages. So I was familiar with that scene, but not much else. Yeah, and I 
honestly wasn't familiar with anything but the names in the cast. So I I think the first time I was aware of Lawrence Arabia was when we went to see Supergirl when I was very young and a fan of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. And when we came out, my mom was going, how did they talk Peter O'Toole into making that piece of garbage? He was Lawrence of Arabia. So, which now I can see, because, yeah, I, I knew Supergirl wasn't great at the time. But as I've gotten older, I realize, no, it's even worse than I thought. And, well, this movie, it's not perfect. It is strong. It's another sweeping epic. And there are some elements that I would consider flaws. Generally speaking, the performances are not on that list. I mean, the only thing I would change with casting is maybe have people who are actually of the ethnic background of their characters. So it's not that the people in makeup didn't act well. It's just, yeah, once again, we have a story with relatively few white characters, although obviously Lawrence and a lot of the British military are. But the people he's surrounded by are not white, but they're often played by white people in makeup. And this was this wasn't Peter O'Toole's first film, but I think this was his breakthrough role. That could well be. I, I think it was maybe his uh, fifth film, and you you do get a sense of the presence that made him famous. You know, when people talk about Betty Davis's physical features, you know, a lot of people would talk about her eyes. You know, there's even the song about it. Peter O'Toole has really piercing eyes. His eyes always stand out. Yeah, he does. And you were very close. This is actually his fourth film. Okay. Prior to this, he'd had seven TV credits. And then he was also in Kidnapped, The Savage Innocents, and The Day They Robbed the Bank of England. So looking at his TV credits, Okay, he was in The Scarlet Pimpernel. That's the one I've heard of, but not from the TV series that he was a part of. And he played the first soldier in one particular episode. So, yeah, that would not have been a standout role. So, yeah, I I suspect you are right that this is the movie that put him on the map, so to speak. This would have been his breakout. there's, There's nothing I could have named prior to this, aside from some literary adaptations where I just know what they were based on. So that, again, is also surprising then that David Lean would have managed to get him as the star because this was a very significant investment. I mean, sure, you've got the director of The Bridge on the River Kwai, which we've already discussed at length because it was a previous Best Picture winner. But to have a relatively unknown actor carrying a, what, three-hour and 47-minute epic, that's got to have been considered a risk at the time. It was, and I I know that he wasn't the first choice. So evidently, Albert Finney, who was also an unknown, was cast but was fired after two days. And I wasn't able to fi- find out why Finney was fired. But in an alternate universe, this could have been kind of Albert Finney's big breakthrough role instead of the movie we'll be talking about next month, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at Wikipedia. They say that uh, Marlon Brando, Anthony Perkins, and Montgomery Clift were also considered in between. That would have been 
I, I wonder about the parallel universe where Anthony Perkins got the part because this is so far removed from Psycho and he had such a hard time getting roles that were different from Psycho that it, that would have, I think, completely changed the path of his career. It's one of those things to where I wonder how people would have reacted with an American cast in the role. I mean, not that they couldn't do accents or whatnot, but still. Yeah, it might have been a challenge for some audiences, but as we could see by looking at the actors playing Arabs, they weren't super picky about the actor's actual heritage at this time. Sure. I mean, look at the uh, Prince Faisal, Prince of Jordan, who was played by Alec Guinness. That's a very British man. You know, I'm actually impressed with the cast. It is a war film set in World War I. So while it does have the reputation for probably being the longest film to fail the Bechdel test, as, as we said, three hours, 47 minutes, you don't even have any speaking parts for women. Like I think the only time women speak are when they're just kind of chanting on top of the rocks. Yes, and I'm okay with it. And, and what I mean by I'm okay with it is... <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm going to compare it to the other David Lean film we've covered so far, Bridge on the River Kwai. I would almost prefer that there are no female parts in it if it's just not historically appropriate than shoehorn a 15-minute love interest scene just to just to have that aspect. You know, because we talked about mm -hmm. this with Bridge on the River Kwai. There were the women who were there to enable them, you know, William Holden and um, uh, Hawkins. I can't remember the the actor's name is Hawkins. I can't remember uh, the character he played, you know, that enabled them to get to the bridge to place the explosives. And then there's that 10 minute scene where Holden's having the affair with the nurse. And, and that was it. And to me, that was almost more egregious than just this is a war film set in the Middle East and because we're talking rulers and soldiers and it's just what was historically accurate, there weren't women part of the story. Yeah, this is a military story in a time where women would not have been allowed to serve in these roles. So, yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that it got that long, but you know, actually, if I hadn't read that, it might not have felt so much like the women were missing just because of, you know, the, the nature of this story. As you said, a historically accurate representation of this story would have few women, if any, in it. So. Who I was pleasantly surprised to see, just because I wasn't aware um, that his career had gone this long, was uh, Claude Rains as kind of the government official Dryden. Yeah, I... Didn't realize he was still working in the 60s. And, you know, he was he was not a young man, but not super old at this point. But yeah, he was, I mean, we discussed his work in Casablanca. He was the lead in Invisible Man, which was not nominated for anything, if memory serves. So we may not have mentioned that before. Right. But no, he's always excellent. And he has almost, I mean, I don't want to mislead our listeners. This is in no way a James Bond type film, but to a certain extent, T.E. Lawrence is almost 
a government agent and that he's he's a soldier but what he's really what he's really tasked with is essentially getting himself embedded with Faisal's forces getting Faisal's ear and directing them in a way that's militarily advantageous for for the British even though his ideas of what's advantageous for the British are different from what his commanders think and and Claude Rains almost has that M type role here he's you know he's the man from the government who's trying to arrange the pieces on the chessboard and negotiate the treaties mm-hmm. yeah he he is definitely sort of pulling the the strings behind the scenes. I also just checked his IMDb listings here. This is one of his last works. Okay. So this was 1962. He was working up to 1965, and he passed away in 1967 at age 77. So he was, you know, he was working pretty much till the end. And I, we would have briefly mentioned it. Not only was you know, I know we talked about him with Casablanca because Casablanca won uh, Best Picture the year it was nominated for. But Claude Rains was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, I think, three times, if I'm looking at it correctly. He was nominated in 39 for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was nominated again in 42 for Casablanca and 44 for Mr. Skeffington. And then 46 for Notorious. So a very, he never won, but still a very distinguished career. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with his role in Notorious. He did a fantastic job there. So that's a movie that I think the Academy should have recognized in more more ways than it did. But again, that's the Hitchcock fan of me going, why are you ignoring Hitchcock so much? Let's talk about Omar Sharif a little bit, because this was his first English role. He was a very well-established Egyptian actor, but I think this is the first time he would be in in a film, maybe it's wrong of me to say this, with a more international reach. But And I thought he was great in it as Sharif Ali. Yeah, he, he was one of the impressive ones. Like I said, it, this cast... They all nailed it. There is nobody I would really point to and say, yeah, they could have done better, at least in major roles. Right? You might have the odd person who only has one or two lines where it's not 100% convincing, but that, that's it for the vast majority of this project. Right? This is a strong cast, well-directed. Right? They, they tell the story well. And you know, like we said, it's based on T.E. Lawrence's autobiography. So it's, you know, hopefully it's an accurate picture. Most autobiographies are, but not all. My grandfather wrote an autobiography. No publisher would have touched it because it was such a blatant work of fiction. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's kind of an odd war film. And I, what, what I mean by odd, it's about a campaign that gets very little exposure but from a real world events perspective you can draw a through line between current mid middle eastern politics today and this is one as and some of the real world maneuverings that are happening in this film being some of the inciting factors for some of that 
because there is, uh, so for, for our listeners, and I think this came through in the synopsis, but just in case, the, the British are trying to drive the Turks out of the Middle East, essentially. And they are, they are supporting uh, Prince, Fi- Prince Faisal, who is Arabic um, royalty. I, as you said, he was a prince of Jordan. And they use Lawrence to basically incite and drive and get Faisal to drive his forces in a way that are advantageous for the British. And the British are essentially, with as much doublespeak as possible, telling Faisal and his father, the King of Jordan, that they are doing this to turn the Middle East back over to the Arabic uh, peoples. In reality, there was a three-way treaty between France, Russia, and England over how this area would get carved up once the Turks were successfully thrown out. And not long after the events of this film, that treaty was made public because the Bolshe- essentially the Bolshevik uh, revolution happened. And since a lot of the European powers um, had supported the monarchy and not the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks' way of kind of trying to upend thing and get their own back was they made very they made very public a lot of the backroom political deals that the Russian government that they overthrew were part of. So when there is that, we're we're doing this for the Arabs, right? Yes, yes, of course we are. You know, they weren't, and part of Peter O'Toole's performance is. You do have that story of a soldier who goes native is the wrong term, but forms a very strong bond with the people he's helping. And their cause, in a way, becomes his cause, even more than perhaps his own country's cause. And part of the great performance of Peter O'Toole is you can tell that Lawrence isn't buying what Alan B. and Dryden are telling him, but there's still enough duty or enough moral compromise to still help Faisal and the people along that he's willing to act like he believes it. Um, but but you could tell, the, with the performance that Peter O'Toole gives, you could tell that Lawrence isn't really buying the official line from the government. No, he's not. And he calls them a couple times. Like you know, he gives them multiple opportunities. Is this really what's going on? Until he eventually pressures them to the point where they say, "Well, yeah, this is going on." Because he's saying, "Well, why do these guys think there's this treaty out there?" And it's only then that they they fess up. But yeah, you're you're right. They, if you are interested in world history, this is a much more important piece of it than a lot of people realize. And and there's a certain extent of there's also that theme of war is hell but not in the way that you typically get it, you know. But you see Lawrence have to make really hard choices. The The synopsis doesn't give it credit, but, you know, I am a morally good man, and I am not going to leave someone behind. So even though we are on this horrible, str- going through, crossing this horrible stretch of desert, and we're almost at the end, 
I'm going to go back and get the man we left behind. And yes, that's going to endear me to my troops. Sharif Ali is going to is going to believe that I really am on their side. And a week later, I'm going to be negotiating a very important treaty between tribes to get enough troops to do what we have to do. There's going to be a soldier who's committed a deed that I'm going to have to punish, and punish in the most extreme terms so that this treaty still goes through, and it's going to be the one that I spent all that effort saving. And I'm still going to go ahead and do it, and it's going to bother me because I'm not as horrified by the act as I think I should be. Yeah, and that was the really interesting piece where he admits that he actually enjoyed that execution and because he was very devoted to using nonviolent means all the time. And I, the film gives you the distinct impression between the dialogue and O'Toole's performance. It's because he's afraid of the person he might become by participating in those violent acts. And we see that change in Lawrence when, you know, he, he started off and people were supporting him because he was, you know, joining for the cause. He was saying, yeah, we don't need to recruit people. They will choose to join us. But it ends with a bunch of hired mercenaries in the army. So you see this shift in Lawrence as he's going through. And the sense of betrayal he feels, right? So take Damascus. Okay, we t- took Damascus. We'll give it to us. And, and that that's kind of that big flashpoint, right? Where all the where all the um lies have to fall away. Oh, this was really for you. No, I'm going to tell them, we told them that this was for them. I'm going to tell them, you know, I'm going to tell them to keep it. And he does that in the face of all opposition to to the point where even in the end, Faisal turns his back on him. You know, I, I don't remember the exact words, but, you know, Alec Guinness has a line to something to the extent of, it's in both of our best interests that Major Lawrence go home. Yeah, he he definitely became the kind of man he'd been trying to fight against early on. It's it's a story where the road to hell is paved with good intentions, in a lot of ways. The only directorial stumbling block I think this film has is, I thought the opening framing narrative of showing his death in the motorcycle accident, and then having the device of uh, the reporters trying to interview um, the mourners at his funeral and getting several conflicting um, takes of what kind of man Lawrence was. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't really feel like, you know, the dejected Lawrence in the car heading back to headquarters, wherever headquarters may have been, Egypt or whatever, um, before being shipped back to Britain. And seeing the motorcyclists pass them by, I I understand that that's supposed to be a call forward or a call back to his death, but I didn't think that that really worked because there wasn't really a tie to Lawrence and that motorcycle. Yeah, and I think the problem with that is that it is based on a true story. And the section of Lawrence's life that we're focused on doesn't really connect with his death. It was very inauspicious, aside from the fact that, yeah, he was a risk taker, and that's it. So I I think they included 
his manner of death because yeah, they're telling the man's life story. We might as well include it. We know how he dies, but it didn't fit the rest of his life because real life is not a story. We don't necessarily have ironies and symmetries and you know the the callbacks and the metaphors. He was just a, a man who at the time would have been getting on in years, who liked motorcycles and had an accident. Well, and it's, I mean, again, it's based off of an autobiography, so we assume it's more accurate than uh, some biopics, right? But there's a whole 17 years of his life that this film doesn't touch on, because I, I just quickly went to uh, the page on T.E. Lawrence. The film ends roughly 1918 with the capture of Damascus. Lawrence... Lawrence's motorcycle accident was in 1935. Mm -hmm. So we don't see a lot that's out of that. His autobiography came out in 1926. So it is technically in the public domain now, at least in most of the world. Because in the U.S., anything 1927 or earlier is in the public domain. Canada and Britain both use Life Plus 50, I believe, so... It's been in the public domain since uh, 1985 here. And we, I believe the country that has the longest possible copyright period would be Mexico because that's life plus 100 years. So in Mexico, we've got 14 more years. But in the vast majority of the world, this book is already public domain. It's not currently on Project Gutenberg. So it's not easy to download and read and see you know, what changes they made for the movie. But, yeah, it is available. So should we move from here to discussion of the awards? Sure. All right. So the 35th Annual Awards Ceremony took place on April 8th, 1963, in the Santa Monica Cinematic Auditorium, hosted by Frank Sinatra this time. So we'll... And there is a bit of a story behind the Best Actress, but I think we'll go through all the awards before we come sure. back to that story. So Best Picture naturally went to Lawrence of Arabia. That's why we've been talking about it already. It beat out The Longest Day, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Best Director went to David Lean, beating out Frank Perry for David and Lisa, uh, Pietro Jeremy for Divorce Italian Style, Arthur Penn for The Miracle Worker, and Robert Mulligan for To Kill a Mockingbird. And yeah, David Lean did win for Lawrence of Arabia. Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird, beating out Burt Lancaster and Birdman of Alcatraz, Jack Lemmon for Days of Wine and Roses, Marcello Mastriani for Divorce Italian Style, and Peter O'Toole for Lawrence of Arabia. Best Actress went to Anne Bancroft for her work in The Miracle Worker, beating out Betty Davis for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Catherine Hepburn for Long Day's Journey into Night, Geraldine Page for Sweet Bird of Youth, and Lee Remick for Days of Wine and Roses. Best Supporting Actor went to Ed Bigley Sr. for Sweet Bird of Youth, beating out Victor Bueno for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Telly Savalas for Birdman and Alcatraz, Omar Sharif for Lawrence of Arabia, and Terrence Stamp for the title role in Billy Budd. Now curious about watching Billy Budd to see how the title character is a supporting role. <laughs> Best Supporting Actress went to Patty Duke as Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker beating out Mary Badham from To Kill a Mockingbird, Shirley Knight from Sweet Bird of Youth, Angela Lansbury for The Manchurian Candidate, and Thelma Ritter for Birdman of Alcatraz. Best Story and Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen went to Divorce Italian Style, 
beating out Freud, The Secret Passion, Last Year at Marion Bad, That Touch of Mink, and Through a Glass Darkly. And Best Screenplay, Best on Material for Another Medium, went to To Kill a Mockingbird, beating out David and Lisa, Lawrence of Arabia, Lolita, and The Miracle Worker. Best Foreign Language Film went to Sundays in Sebel, beating out Electra, The Four Days of Naples, Keeper of Promises, and Tayukan, which actually surprises me because Divorce Italian Style should have fit in that category. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if the filmmakers chose not to submit it for that category. Uh, best Documentary went to Black Fox, beating out Alvarado. Documentary Short, Dylan Thomas, beat out The John Glenn Story and The Road to the Wall. Best Live Action Short Subject went to Irou Anniversaire, beating out Big City Blues, The Cadillac, The Quiff Dellers, and Pan. Best Short Subject Cartoons, The Whole, beat out Icarus Montgolfer Wright, Now Hear This, Self-Defense for Cowards, and A Symposium of Popular Songs. Best Musical Score, Substantially Original. It's an interesting caveat on that category now. That went to Lawrence of Arabia, beating out Freud, Mutiny on the Bounty, Terrace Bulba, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Best Scoring a Music, Adaptation, or Treatment. That went to The Music Man, beating out Billy Rose's Jumbo, Chigot, Gypsy, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Best Song was the title track from Days of Wine and Roses, beating out the love song from Mutiny on the Bounty, the song from Two for the Seesaw, that's the title track there, title track from Tender is the Night, and title track from Walk on the Wild Side. Best Sound went to Lawrence of Arabia, beating out Bon Voyage, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, That Touch of Mink, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Best Art Direction, Black and White. That went to To Kill a Mockingbird, beating out Days of Wine and Roses, The Longest Day, Period of Adjustment, and The Pigeon That Took Rome. Best Art Direction, Color. Lawrence of Arabia beat out Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, That Touch of Mink, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Best Cinematography, Black and White. Went to The Longest Day, beating out Birdman of Alcatraz, To Kill a Mockingbird, Two for the Seesaw, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Best Cinematography Color went to Lawrence of Arabia, beating out Gypsy, Hatari, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Best Costume Design Black and White went to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, beating out Days of Wine and Roses, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Miracle Worker, and Phaedra. Best Costume Design Color went to The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, beating out Bon Voyage, Gypsy, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, and My Geisha. Best Film Editing went to Lawrence of Arabia, beating out The Longest Day, The Manchurian Candidate, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man, and Mutiny on the Bounty. And we may have commented on the lack of women in the film. I do want to point out that the editor was Anne V. Coates. So editing was one of the first areas where women actually started to really get hired in Hollywood, aside from costume design and art direction. And the best special effects went to The Longest Day, beating out Mutiny on the Bounty. It doesn't involve Lawrence of Arabia, but... I am surprised that Wonderful World of the the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm didn't have a nomination in Best Special Effects. I know this is the day and age when they basically nominated two at most to say here's the winner and here's the runner up. That had some Harry Housen stop motion in it. There's a lot of interesting film effects, so I'm just surprised that that one wasn't nominated in that area. Yeah, but even though they're getting into the visual effects, which are most strongly associated with genre films, they're still not often recognizing genre films. Yeah. So, 
Anyway, uh, the only other award is the non-competitive honorary awards, and this year was just the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award that went to Steve Broidy, who was an executive. So Lawrence of Arabia had the most nominations with 10, followed by To Kill a Mockingbird with 8, Mutiny on the Bounty with 7, The Music Man with 6, and then Days of Wine and Roses, Longest Day, Miracle Worker, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane were tied with 5, and then there's a number of other movies that got 4, 3, and 2. There are only four movies actually won multiple awards. Lawrence of Arabia won seven. To Kill a Mockingbird won three. And The Longest Day and The Miracle Worker took home two each. And then I don't know if we want to get to the best actress thing now. Or... We, we, we can. There, I mean, there's a few interesting things this year, and that's, that's one of them. It's also worth talking about the screenwriting credit for Lawrence of Arabia and how that's evolved. Okay, um, I'm not familiar with that one, so I'll start with the best actress and then pass it over to you for the screenwriting. Sure. Yeah, so Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had a long-going feud. They'd been feuding for a couple of decades at this point, and uh, this kind of wrapped up that feud because Davis considered herself sort of the victor when she and Joan Crawford both starred in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and Davis was the only one nominated. But then Joan Crawford, who, you know, typical for Joan Crawford, she would tell the other actresses, if you can't make the ceremony, I'll accept for you. Because, you know, they'd often be doing Broadway or something, as Anne Bancroft was this year. But apparently this year, Crawford not only volunteered to accept the awards for any other actress who couldn't make it, but she campaigned strongly for Anne Bancroft to win the award and was getting people to vote for Bancroft specifically so that Crawford would be the one who would get up there and take the stage and just show up Davis. So, and that's what Davis believed she was doing. She was the one that was saying that, yeah, Crawford was getting people to vote for Bancroft and the Miracle Worker just so she would be the one to accept the award and not me. Well, and my, my understanding of things is what particularly galled Davis was I, I think both her and Crawford, I mean, obviously, you know, towards the twilight of their, or moving into the twilight of their career, but I think they had participation, you know, profit participation on the movie. So Betty Davis was like, you know, you dislike me so much that if I had won, you do realize that that would have kept the film in the theaters longer and we would have made more money <laughs> and, you know, so for for Davis, I don't know that it was just about the recognition and the award, but I you know, I, I think it kind of hurt them financially as well. Yeah, it it probably did, but I think also at that point, they were probably both financially comfortable. True. So you said that there's also some evolving writer credits. There, there is. So Michael Wilson was the original screenwriter for Lawrence of Arabia, and uh, Sam Spiegel, the producer, and David Lean decided they were unhappy with his work during pre-production. So uh, they brought in Robert Bolt. Robert Bolt was a playwright who had written A Man for All Seasons, and uh, Spiegel picked him to do the rewrite to kind of court Bolt so that Bolt would sell him the film rights to A Man for All Seasons. And Robert Bolt essentially did a complete rewrite of the script. At this time, 
Wilson was blacklisted. So when the film premiered, the screenwriting credit was originally just for Robert Bolt, and he's the he's the one who was nominated. But Michael Wilson's family filed an appeal with the Writers Guild in the mid '90s, and the Writers Guild decided that the credit had been that the credit had not been properly attributed and and kind of forced the amendment of the credit to be for Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson. So now the official record reads that both men were nominated for this screenplay. But in the ceremony, Michael Wilson's name would not have been said. Okay, yeah, that would have been a very different thing. So how do you feel about the Academy's choices on this one? I'm not disappointed. It's not the movie that I personally would have voted for. We've we've talked before how often, not always, but often best director and best film go hand in hand, especially with who was nominated for what. I could completely see David Lean being the best director. I personally prefer both The Music Man and To Kill a Mockingbird To Kill a Mockingbird to Lawrence of Arabia. And To Kill a Mockingbird is probably the one that I, if I was in the Academy, that I personally would have voted for Best Picture. Okay, so we are in complete agreement then. (laughs) Those are actually the only three of the five nominees that I've seen. So I haven't seen The Longest Day or Mutiny on the Bounty yet. I would say that The Music Man is second only to Singing in the Rain for Hollywood musicals, in my opinion. But To Kill a Mockingbird is another fantastic film. I am pleasantly surprised to see The Music Man got this many nominations because it it doesn't strike me as best picture material. It is a very well-constructed, entertaining film, but it's not trying to, you know, it's not trying to challenge you. You're not going to walk away going, do I need to make different life choices? To Kill a Mockingbird is a very well-made film. That can make you walk away going, do I need to make different life choices? So I, yeah, I personally would have given it to Mockingbird. But that doesn't mean the Academy was wrong to give it to Lawrence of Arabia because of the epic scope, because of the location shooting. Mm-hmm. Lawrence of Arabia is a significantly more difficult film to make. So I can see the Academy who are much more sensitive to the production side than you and I would be saying, no, that is a more impressive achievement. Yeah, especially, and and I think that's something that we tend to lose with perspective. And I think it's something that you and I have discussed before. We are still in the very early days of special effects. And I do think the Academy takes into account how hard was it to to make this picture. So, you know, you do look at something like To Kill a Mockingbird, great film, right? But at most three sets maybe you're rarely dealing with more than four or five actors on the screen at a time a lot of young actors you know that's the challenge but this is a time to where you know to do Lawrence of Arabia and simulate being in the Middle East you are in the Middle East or in a very similar client you know climate there are some things you can get away with 
um, models on, but the train attack for, just as an example, you had to have a real train in the desert with, you know, 50 or 60 extras tightly choreographed. That's, that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that's actually worked in David Lean's favor both times we've discussed his work, because the last time was Bridge on the River Kwai. And I, if memory serves, we were both saying 12 Angry Men, and at least I know certainly 12 Angry Men is my pick for that decade, yeah. let alone for that year. And again, like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's one that makes you walk away saying, do I need to make better life choices? In addition to being absolutely riveting as a piece of entertainment. Now, going through what the Golden Globes picked, they were starting to list their nominees. So Lawrence of Arabia was their pick for the best drama out of 10 nominees. Wow. But again, looking at their list of nominees, I would say, again, it would be between Lawrence of Arabia and To Kill a Mockingbird. Although they did have similar nominees, Days of Wine and Roses, Mutiny on the Bounty, Miracle Worker. The comedy went to That Touch of Mink out of five nominees, and Best Film Musical went to The Music Man out of five nominees. Best Actor, Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird out of ten nominees, one of whom was Bobby Darren. So Gregory Peck beat out Bobby, Bobby Darren, Lawrence Harvey, Jackie Gleason, Burt Lancaster, Jack Lemmon, James Mason, Paul Newman, Peter O'Toole, and Anthony Quinn, the last two for Lawrence of Arabia. Best Actress in a Drama went to Geraldine Page for Sweet Bird of Youth. And again, 10 nominees there. I'm going to, just for the interest of time, I'm going to stop listing the nominees. Sure. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical went to Marcello Mastriani for Divorce Italian Style. So Best Actress for Comedy or Musical went to Rosalind Russell for Gypsy. Supporting Actor went to Omar Sharif for Lawrence of Arabia. Supporting Actress went to Angela Lansbury for The Manchurian Candidate. Director went to David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia. Best Film Promoting International Understanding went to To Kill a Mockingbird. Best Music Original Score went to To Kill a Mockingbird with a score by Elmer Bernstein. Black and White Cinematography went to The Longest Day. Color Cinematography went to Lawrence of Arabia. And we didn't mention the cinematography. I absolutely will not dispute the win in that category. No, I wouldn't either. And for television, best TV program was The Dick Powell Show. Best comedy went to Mr. Ed. Best male TV star went to Richard Chamberlain as Dr. Kildare. Best TV star female went to Donna Reed for The Donna Reed Show. And the best TV producer slash director went to Rod Serling for The Twilight Zone which I believe was in its final year in 1962, or possibly very close to it. Uh, Best international news coverage went to Telstar. Most promising newcomer male. Here's a list of names we've heard. Kier D'Elia from 2001 A Space Odyssey is probably the least well-known, I would say. The other three winners are Peter O'Toole, Omar Sharif, and Terrence Stamp. And Paul Wallace was a runner-up. And then uh, best, most promising newcomer female. Patty Duke, Sue Lyon, and Rita Tushingham all took that award home. Patty Duke is the one I know I've heard. And the runner-ups were uh, Delilah Lavi, or Dahlia Lavi, Janet Margolin, and Suzanne Plachette, who's the only one of those three I remember hearing about. And finally, the Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Bob Hope. So I don't know if you had any comments on those. We've frequently talked about how Best newcomer, sometimes they may be citing someone to where we know for a fact 
it's like their fourth or fifth film that's well regarded today. I am surprised that Mary Batham wasn't in one, like one of the best female newcomer runner-ups. Mm-hmm. As skeleton to kill a mockingbird. Because you you would think, I mean, obviously. In the real world, yes, there are publicists and whatnot behind a lot of this. But you would think that would be the type of actress or actor that they would be trying to call out with that type of award. Yeah, you would think so. And she didn't have a huge number of credits. She's got seven credits grand total on the IMDb right now. She went To Kill a Mockingbird was her debut. Then Dr. Kildare. Then she was actually in the final episode of The Twilight Zone, which aired in 1964. So I guess The Twilight Zone would have been wrapping up season three out of five when this was made. Then This Property is Condemned and Let's Kill Uncle are both 1966. Our very own was 2005. And Erasing His Past came out in 2019. So, yeah, and that's her Twilight Zone appearance is unfortunate. So it it wasn't the strongest script. It became the series finale because that's what they did with the week episodes when they knew they were getting canceled. They dumped them to the end to try and retain the audience as long as they could because they thought the week ones are going to make people tune out and not come back. So it wasn't a great script, and there was issues with shooting so that because of the, the pool and the lakes and the just the environment, Almost all of her dialogue was unusable, but she was not available to re-record as ADR after the fact. So they had somebody else dubbing her voice the whole time. And my only other question, I, I'm not going to ask you to read all the nominees, but just because we talked about the contention, was Joan Crawford one of the other 10 Best Actress nominees? Uh, no, but Betty Davis was. Okay. So it was the same, the at least the same breakdown. Anne Bancroft was nominated but did not win. So the best actress, I might as well run through them because the uh, so Geraldine Page won. Uh, the other nominees were Anne Bancroft, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, Glynis Johns, Melina McCurry, Lee Remick, Susan Strasberg, Shelley Winters, and Susanna York. So a lot of recognizable names. So based off of that, and Jackie Gleason, I'm I'm going to assume that Papa's Delicate Condition came out this year. Yeah, could be. I'm I'm actually not seeing okay. that title, so I, I'm only aware of Jackie Gleason being in I'm not saying that I'm right, but prior to the Smokey and the Bandit films, I'm only aware of Jackie Gleason being in three films and he and Glennis Johns co starred in Papa's Delicate Condition. So that's when when she said both names, that's why I was like, hmm, I wonder if this was that year. <laughs> No, yeah, it's uh, Glynis Johns was up for the Chapman Report. Oh, okay. So, and the I think of all the other movies that were nominated by either board, the other one that I want to call attention to is Divorce Italian Style. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't. It is, uh, it's a very dark comedy, but it is very well made. Uh, Divorce Italian Style is that at this period in Italy, Divorce was still illegal because of the influence of the Catholic Church. So if you were to get a divorce, the you would get, I forget the exact numbers, but the prison term for a divorce was greater than the prison term that you would face if you came home, found your wife with another man, and killed the other man in the heat of passion. 
so divorce Italian style was where a guy wants a divorce. So, or you know, if you kill the other man or the your wife in the in the throes of passion when you came in and found her with another man, you'd get a, a, a lighter sentence. So yeah, divorce Italian style is a guy who falls in love with a young girl. So he's trying to nudge his wife into having an affair so that he can kill her and get out of jail earlier to spend the rest of his life with the other woman. It's actually much funnier than that description would imply. So now, as far as the historical ratings are concerned, if we look at IMDb users and sort of restrict our attention to the nominees, or at least to American films, To Kill a Mockingbird is the highest rated English language film of the year. It comes in at number three. And then Lawrence of Arabia is number seven. They are the two highest rated English language films. And they both have an average rating of 8.3 out of 10. So even though they're four slots apart, the actual voting has them very close together. It's a pretty tight competition for that year. If we look at the letterbox ratings for the year, they do say, you know, of the nominees and just the, the English language films, um, they've got Lawrence of Arabia as number one. They have Whatever Happened to Baby Jane coming in at number 11, and To Kill a Mockingbird at 15. They also have The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance coming in at number 8. Mm. And 12 is Sanjuro, the sequel to Yojimbo, but that's a Japanese film. So just a little aside for those who've been listening to all the podcasts that you've heard us on. So it does look like, at least the Letterboxd users say that the Academy made the right choice. IMDb users say To Kill a Mockingbird. Normally my my personal preferences are more strongly aligned with Letterboxd than the IMDb users, but this time I'm going with the IMDb. I would go with To Kill a Mockingbird over Lawrence of Arabia just because of the impact it has on the viewer. And that's not to say Lawrence of Arabia is a bad film. I mean, the... American Film Institute picked their 100 Years 100 films twice. In 1998, it was the 100th year of the American Film Institute, and they said Lawrence of Arabia was the fifth greatest American film of all time. And when they revised it in 2007, it did drop, but only to seventh place. So the original top five were Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Godfather, Gone with the Wind, and Lawrence of Arabia. And then the revised top five were Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, Singing in the Rain, and then Gone with the Wind dropped to six, and Lawrence of Arabia dropped to seven. I will say, Rob Kelly's uh, Citizen Kane Minute podcast recently wrapped up, and uh, about halfway through its run, he started. He initially was asking his guests if they agreed that Citizen Kane was um, the greatest or one of the greatest films of all time. About halfway through the run, he amended that question to do you think it's one of the greatest of all time? And what other films would you put in that same stratosphere? And and I will say at least five to six people when listing off the films that they thought were in that, that same grouping with Citizen Kane mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. That's good to know. I'm a bit behind on that. I've only listened to the first 13 episodes so far. I've got them all. I do recommend it. So yeah, the Citizen Kane Minute is a good one. Um, obviously, by nature, it's yeah wrapped up with episode 25. I've just gotten behind on so many podcasts now that we have a baby in the house. Yeah, so Lawrence of Arabia is a very good film. 
even if we wouldn't have chosen it as best picture, I don't think either of us are ever going to say, oh, it was wrong to give it best picture. Right. Like it, this would have been, it, this is not a year where you can say, oh yeah, there's this and there's others. Like to me, looking at that ballot, it's between Lawrence and Mockingbird and the other three, at least of the, the one I've seen, the music man of the three is probably the one I've watched the most, and it's the one I expect to come back to and rewatch the most because it is the most entertaining, and it's also the least depressing of the three. Mm-hmm. You will walk away with a smile on your face when you watch The Music Man. Um, it's one of the musicals where you understand why these people are singing and dancing when they are. It is part of the, it's part of the story, and it's a natural part of the story for the most part. I think the only time it doesn't really fit the characters is the initial song on the train. But that's forgivable. It it sets the tone for the film. Yes. I mean it's it's such a it's such it's still somewhat diegetic. I mean, even though people wouldn't naturally sing in that spot, the fact that the song is staged so that the rhythm so perfectly matches the sound and the rhythm of the train, I think makes it, uh, it it still kind of feels like it's in keeping with everything else in the musical. It is. For those who are unaware, The Music Man is the story of a guy who goes from town to town selling boys' bands, and the other door-to-door salesmen don't like him because he is a con artist. He knows absolutely nothing about music. And when he gets to town before they do, they get run out of town because the town gets burned so badly. And the lead is played by Robert Preston. And they have tried to remake it multiple times with, I think once with Matthew Broderick and others, you know, mostly on stage because it started as a stage play. And I don't know that it can be reproduced because Robert Preston is just so perfect in the role. You both believe that he is an unethical con man, but you are also charmed by him, so you completely believe why he's winning over the town. It's the kind of person where it's like, yeah, I can be 99% sure he's a con man, but I like him so much, I'm going to fork over the money anyway, just in case of that 1%. As of when we're recording this, the conversation's timely, because as Broadway's come out of... um the pandemic, I think the hottest ticket in New York right now is the latest revival of Music Man with um, Hugh Jackman in the title role and Sutton Foster playing Marion the Librarian, which is the love interest in it. Yes, played by Shirley Jones in the original. And there's uh, a young boy in it by the name of Ron Howard that we may have heard of and whom we may be discussing in the future. So yeah, that I would say of... The three major nominees we've talked about here. So Lawrence of Arabia, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Music Man. I'd even throw in Divorce Italian Style. I could recommend all four of those films to just about anyone. And the one that's the hardest to recommend would be Divorce Italian Style, just because it is very dark and very twisted. Not everyone would enjoy that that setup. But of those three I've seen that were nominated for Best Picture, I would say yes, if you have even the slightest interest, watch them all. Lawrence of Arabia is there for the people who like the sweeping war epics, the historical films, or just, like we said, it's a piece of actual world history. To Kill a Mockingbird is an adaptation 
of a very well-known book that makes us question the way we see people of various colors. You know, it's one of those ones where I hesitate to just say people of color because, no, we need to, stuff like that need to make us look at how even white people see ourselves and what are we doing consciously or otherwise when we're interacting with others. And then The Music Man is just one of Hollywood's most fun musicals, period. There's, you know, entire episode of The Simpsons is a parody of that one movie, not just a one-off joke. They said, no, this is worth devoting the full 24 minutes. It's, uh, and we'll talk about some others uh, during the course of this podcast, but it's, uh, Music Man's in my top five movie musicals. I have a few that are in that list where people would be like, huh? But it's more just nostalgia and where I was in life when I discovered them. On my short list, Music Man's in the same list as Singing in the Rain, for example, and others. Okay, I'll be interested to compare our top fives, because I've got a couple eyebrow razors in there, too. So did you have any final thoughts or anyone that you would recommend this to? It, it, is, a, it is a good war drama film. There's some really innovative scenes in it. So, so yeah, you know, as you mentioned, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in the Middle East, I do think this is a... You know, obviously by its letterbox ranking, but also as often as it got mentioned by several of the guest hosts on Citizen Kane Minute, a lot of lovers of film love this movie. So, you know, if you're a regular listening listener to this podcast, hopefully that, <laughs> you know, that includes you. And there's not really, you know, a, a lot of times we give trigger warnings or kind of warnings from a modern day sensibility. And that I can't think of a lot that is objectionable in this film. You know, obviously it's based on the subject's autobiography, so he may have been biased. Some could say that it veers into the white white savior trope, but while he while he advises Lawrence doesn't do so it's not like it's not like the Middle Eastern characters are robbed of their agency in the film so I don't think that's really a fair criticism of it and I think it does a good job of portraying those uh, Middle Eastern characters with dignity there's no joke characters in this like even the two orphans who become his, ser- you know, kind of his servants or squires, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it. I hesitated calling them servants because they're not servants in the, necessarily to the extent of like, we would think of servants, but there are often young men who did jobs to, you know, take care of the camps and whatnot doing war, and that's what they were doing. They were there to show the cost of the war, but they weren't jokes. Prince Facade was not a joke. You know, Kashim, or not Kashim, I'm not remembering the name right now, but the the, uh, rival tribe leader uh, that Anthony Quinn uh, portrayed. Oda Abutaya. Thank you. He, He was a mercenary. He was honest that he was there for 
the money and that if the British paid less than the Turks, he'd be on a different side. But he wasn't... This wasn't a film that did the these are the savages and we're here to save the savages trope, I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, it wasn't. And it was almost banned in a lot of the minis because they assumed that would be the case. And it wasn't until... Well, the Prince of Jordan and the, the Prince of Egypt, they were both shown private screenings are saying, no, that's not it. And once they saw the Arab representation on screen, they said, oh, no, that's fine. And they allowed it to be shown in their countries. So, yeah, that is not the case here. So, yeah, they they could have cast fewer white people in the non-white roles. But, yeah, that's really it. it, it on a script level, it is completely respectful. All right, so uh, shall we wrap up then? Okay, that wraps up our discussion of Lawrence of Arabia then. So next month, we will be looking at Tom Jones. And that was the winner, beating out nominees America America, Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, and Lilies of the Field. So you can join us again in a month's time for our discussion of Tom Jones. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.